The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au one of Ephesians chapter 2. Paul is writing and he says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages, in the coming ages, sorry, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Loving Father, as we come now to open your word, and Father, we would see Jesus. We would see him in his glory. We would see him, O God, as the Savior of mankind. And Father, we cry out to you this morning that for anyone in this room that does not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their own Savior, Father, we pray that you would awaken them to faith and repentance, that they might know the Lord Jesus Christ and walk with him day by day. Father, we seek your blessing and we seek your help. In Jesus' name, amen. The bell rings and two bulky, heavily muscled men move to the center of a ring. They touch gloves and the bout begins. For most of the first round, they trade blows back and forth with seeming little effort. Each fighter has the strength and the speed and the timing and the skill to land that one knockout blow. But both are deprived by the other's abilities to block and defend. Finally, one of them sees an opportunity, and he steps in and, and stuns his opponent with a blistering punch to his jaw. A stunned fighter staggers backwards, sort of stumbling slightly, and the one who hit him moves in quickly, seeing the advantage, and pummels his opponent with as many blows as he possibly can on his face and his arm and his upper body. Stun Box's vision is beginning to blur. His lightning-fast feet feel more like lead weights, and his powerful arms are hanging at his side. Defeat and the end seem only seconds away. Blow after pounding blow lands on him. Seconds seem like hours, and the lights begin to go dim, when all of a sudden, like out of a faraway corridor, he hears ding, 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 marking the end of the round. The boxer is saved by the bell. 
His corner man launches himself out into the ring and grabs the boxer and guides him as he sort of weaves back and forth and seats him on the waiting stool and works furiously to revive the boxer and washing his face and, and trying to bring some life back into this failing boxer before the bell can again call him back for more punishing treatment from his opponent. He was saved by the bell, rescued from imminent calamity. That man, his senses dull and numbed by the pounding he was receiving, he knew he needed to be saved. A drowning swimmer going down for the second or even the third time under the water is desperate for the rescue that stands between them and a watery grave. He or she knows she is desperately needs to be saved. A cancer victim. A heart transplant patient, a wounded soldier on the battlefield, all know their desperate need for the intervention of someone to rescue them and save them from an imminent calamity. But what about the one who is absolutely ignorant of their situation? Proceeding blindly forward, oblivious to the danger that awaits them, are they not even more desperate than the others? How many of us have watched, you've seen some of those uh, Famous video shows of uh, famous home videos. Guy rides a bike down a hill and you can just see what's going to happen. And you're inside, you just cringe knowing he's going to go head over turkey and really hurt himself. And you know, you, you want to reach out and save him, but he is absolutely oblivious to what's about to happen to him. We've all felt that helpless despair and knowing there's nothing we can do to save them. Well, the truth is, we all need to be saved. We are all in a desperate situation. We all need the intervention of another person, namely God, into our lives to rescue us from an imminent calamity. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 describes our situation, such a situation. He talks about how we are all dead in sin and trespasses, how we were living according to the world system. We were living according to the ways of the wicked one, and we were all condemned to face the wrath of Almighty God because of those sins. But God has saved us. We are here this morning because God has done a great work in our lives and rescued us. He has rescued us from imminent calamity. God has rescued us from His own wrath against us. He has brought us out of the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of His dear Son. This message is one we all need to hear this morning. We need to be reminded of the completeness of our salvation by God and from God. We need to know the motive of God who saved us. We need to know the way in which God saved us. And we need to know the purpose and glory for which God has saved us. Now, if you're here this morning visiting with us and you're not a Christian, well, let me say, first of all, welcome. If you're here and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm so glad that you're here with us today. There is no place in this earth I'd rather you be than here visiting with us. It's our desire as you have come to know the God, what God has done for you and how he is reaching out to you to save you. The offer he is making to you to be saved and to come to know him. And our prayer is if you're here and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, is that by the time we finish today that you will know him. 
I want to set before us all the following points. Number one, God saved us completely. Number two, God saved us because of His great love. Thirdly, God saved us by uniting us together with Christ. And fourthly, God saved us for His own glory and for our good. Now, if you've been coming to Noble Park Baptist for the last couple of months... You're going to think, those sound awfully familiar. I, think, I remember we've been through this, some of these before. And you're right, we have. And we're going to review those things. But what I want to do today is to tie together the whole passage under its one main subject and message. And that is this, that God has saved us. It is by knowing that God has saved us completely that we can trust Him fully. It's by knowing that God has saved us because of His great love that we can respond to God by loving Him with our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. And loving our neighbors as ourselves and other believers and so on. It's by knowing that God saved us by uniting us with Christ that we have a great hope for the future return and being glorified with Jesus Christ. It's by knowing that we are saved for His glory and our good, that it motivates us to do the good works that God has prepared for us to do and to seek that His name is glorified in everything we do. We are not doing this for our own glory and our own value. We're doing it for Christ's. And finally, to seek for others to come to know Christ without any desire for our own prominence. So first of all, God has saved us completely. That's our first main point. How, has, how great is our salvation and how far does that salvation extend? Unlike the boxer for whom the bell provided only a short temporary relief from the pummeling and defeat that he was saving, he was facing, sorry, the salvation that our God has provided rescues us completely and irrevocably from the wrath and the death that we were certainly facing. Firstly, the Bible says in Ephesians 2 verse 1, For you were dead in your trespasses and sins. The sins and trespasses we committed against God separate us completely from God. So we are alive to our sin, but we're dead to God. So we need to be saved. We need to have our sin dealt with so that we can be reconciled to God. And God has saved us by making us alive with Christ and dead to sin. We were dead in sin, but He has made us alive. Secondly, the Bible says in Ephesians 2 verse 2 that we were living according to the course of this world. Living in agreement with the world's thinking instead of leading, living in obedience to God's will and God's word and God's ways. That offends God. The fact that we live according to the world, not according to His ways. It angers God and it separates us from Him so that we need to be saved so we can live according to God's ways, not according to the world's ways. And God has saved us by making us alive with Christ, with raising us up with Christ and seating us with Him in the heavenly places. He saved us from following the world's wicked ways to living, doing the good works that He has prepared for us to do. Thirdly, third way in which God has saved us. In Ephesians 2 verse 2, we were living according to the prince of the power of the air, which is the devil or Satan. We were living according to the devil. It's to live in pride and rebellion against God so that we are dead and separated from God and living in the dominion of darkness. So again, 
We desperately need to be saved and rescued. Our rebellious hearts need to be turned into hearts that are humble, obedient, full of faith, and worshiping of the living God. We need to be saved. And God has saved us and brought us out of that dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of His dear Son. God has saved us and sealed us with His Holy Spirit to empower us to live in a manner that is pleasing to God. The Bible says, listen, Colossians 1, 13 and 14, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom... In Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Bible also says in Ephesians 1 verse 13, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Fourth reason that God has saved us completely is this. The Bible says we were living according to the passions of the flesh and the desires of the body living according to those fleshly passions and desires, separates us from God just as surely as living according to the world system separates us from Him. God created us to live in obedience to Him with a desire to please Him in every way. But that sin that we commit completely distorted those passions and desires. We were living, striving to fulfill the lusts and the passions of our flesh. We were living in utter selfishness. Like I told you before, you want to watch selfishness? Take a little child and watch them. Everything they do is either grab it for themselves or put it into their mouth. I love watching this uh, video of little kids playing. And there's one kid's got a toy, and he's so happy with that toy. And this other kid has a little toy he's playing with. And as soon as the first kid sees the other kid playing with a toy, he grabs his toys, and he tucks them under his arm, and he kind of works his way over there. And he reaches out, and he grabs the toy away from the kid. He doesn't give a rip about this other toy. All he wants is that he can have it, not the other kid, right? It's just utter selfishness. And that's what we were like. We were living in utter selfishness. And so again, we need to be saved. We need a new nature that loves God, not the passions of our flesh. And so God has saved us. He's made us new creatures in Christ. He's taken out the hardened, stony, sinful hearts and given us new living hearts. He has given us new desires. He sealed us and filled us with His Holy Spirit to empower us to live lives that are pleasing to Him, to walk in obedience to Him, to love Him and our neighbors. Fifthly, the last reason the Bible says that God completely saved us, in Ephesians 2 verse 3 it says, We were by nature children of wrath. What does that mean? It's kind of a weird phrase. It means we were condemned to face God's wrath against ourselves because of our own sin. The first four reasons that we need to be saved are the cause of the last. Fundamentally, we need to be saved from God's wrath against us because we're dead in sin. God's wrath is against us because we lived according to the world's ways and not according to His ways. God's wrath is against us because we live according to the devil and not according to His law, God's law. Because we live according to the passions of our flesh, God's wrath is piling up against us and we need to be rescued from that wrath. We need to be saved and God has saved us 
from his wrath, which is to come. God saved us by venting the full fury of his own wrath against Jesus Christ instead of against us. God saved us. And this is a tough idea to get around, get head around. God saved us by crushing Jesus under his own anger and wrath. God saved us so that we might be rescued from his wrath, which is to come. God saved us completely. He saved us from sin. He saved us from the world's ways and thinking. He saved us from the devil and his dominion. He saved us from the lusts and desires of our own flesh. He saved us from his own wrath against us. It is a complete and full salvation that God has effected for us. There is nothing left in this world that we need to be rescued from by God. It has all been completely and fully and perfectly dealt with. The Bible says in John 3, 16 and 17, it's a verse you probably know. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. John 3 verse 36 says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey, notice the connection between believing and obedience. Positive believing, disobedience is the opposite of that. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So what do we do? We rejoice, Christians, don't we? We rejoice because God has saved us completely. There is nothing left for us to do to affect our own salvation. He has taken care of it completely. But listen, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you are in a desperate situation and desperately need to be saved. Just as surely as that boxer who was getting pummeled in that last round, he was going down, everything was about to collapse, he was about to face complete defeat. We're in the same boat. We're in a desperate situation. The call of the gospel is to cry out to God for forgiveness of sin. Ask Him to forgive us. If you ask God fully believing that you will, He will answer your request, He will forgive. And we accept that Jesus Christ has paid the penalty in full for us. We turn our back on sin. We no longer want anything to do with it. We strive to live in obedience to God's words. And then we will know the joy of forgiveness of sin. I don't know where you stand before God. It doesn't matter, frankly, if you have been coming to this church since the day it opened its door. Or this is the first time you ever set foot in here. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ personally as your Savior, if you have never trusted in Him, turned your back on sin, you are in a desperate situation this day. And I'm pleading with you on the basis of Scripture to trust the Lord Jesus Christ, seek God's forgiveness for your sin, and know what it is to have the home in heaven, a joy you can't be pushed down or defeated. So God is the one who has saved us. But why? Why did he save us? Why did God save us? Second main point. The corner man working in the boxer's corner comes into the ring at the sound of the bell. And he rescues that fighter back into the corner of the ring. He is paid to do that. 
It is his job. It's his responsibility. He has a vested interest in rescuing that boxer as soon as the bell rings. Lifeguard, saving the drowning man. It's his job. He is there and he is paid and he is responsible to make sure that none come to danger and they're rescued if they do. He has a vested interest in saving the drowning man. They both may love their jobs. They may even love the people they are saving, but neither of them loves as God loves. Neither the corner man nor the lifeguard would dare to submit their own son or daughter in the place of that person being defeated or drowned. They would not do it. Love motivates God to save us. The Bible says that for God so loved the world or loved the world in this way that he gave his only begotten son. Now, I know we covered this in some detail a few weeks ago. We're going to review it fairly quickly, but I want you to listen. It's a great thing to be reminded of these things, reminded of the love of God by who saved us. His love in saving us. The Bible says in Romans 5.8 that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now in the text in front of us, we can see three different ways in which God's love is expressed. Firstly, God's love is expressed through mercy. The Bible says in Ephesians 2 verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, God's mercy is the goodness of God and the love of God toward the miserable and the distressed. We were condemned to face the wrath of God Almighty because of our sin. We were the most miserable and distressed of all. If you're here and you can't say for sure that your sin is forgiven, then I promise you, you are the most miserable and distressed of all because you face the wrath of God. Not the wrath like your parents gave you that often got let off a little bit because they felt sorry for you. This is a wrath that goes on for unceasing eons of eternity and will never, ever let loose. God's love is expressed through mercy. God's mercy is the goodness of God and the love of God toward the miserable and the distressed. God's mercy is the love of God toward us that restrains Him from giving us what we rightly deserve to get. God's Word says in Titus 3 verse 5, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. God saved us because of His mercy. Secondly, God's love is expressed through grace. Three times in the passage, Paul declares that it's the grace of God by which we are saved. Verses 5, 7, and 8, he repeats it. God's grace is the love of God toward us that moves Him to give us that which we did not nor could ever deserve. Nobody deserves to be saved. Sometimes I hear the gospel preached and it's almost preached like you're doing God a massive favor if you believe in Him and if you get saved. That's not the case at all. None of us deserves to be saved. Nobody deserved to be saved. But God saves us because He loves us. And He expressed that love by giving us what we had no right to claim. 
The Bible says in 2 Timothy 1 verse 9, He saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. God's love is expressed to us in His mercy and in His grace. And thirdly, God's love is expressed in kindness. You say, aren't they kind of the same sort of thing? Well, yeah, they are, but there's a different switch, a different slant on this one. God's kindness is the way or the manner in which God's love and God's mercy and God's grace is given to us. The Bible says that God has expressed His grace toward us in kindness. It's a kindly manner. I think we all remember days when somebody gave us some grace and mercy and it was given a very ungracious and a very cold kind of way. They let us off the hook, but they sure let us know that we really deserve to get the full weight of the measure of their wrath against us. Remember school teacher letting us off on something, you know. Well, you know, I'll let you off, I guess. I really should just make you guys all do this. And and we walked out feeling so, oh man, we just kind of, you know. But God doesn't do it that way. He does it in kindness. If you read the Bible in Ephesians chapter 1, it talks about how God blessed us or graciously graced us in the Beloved. His grace and mercy was expressed towards us in a kind and a gentle manner. Commentator John Eady said that God's grace was clothed in kindness. It was a gentle, kindly expression of grace. How great was the kindness of God that poured grace out on us who deserved only justice and only condemnation. How great was the kindness of God who expressed mercy toward us when all we deserved was to bear our own cross, was to be crucified ourselves by the soldiers, was to be hung on a cross between heaven and earth, rejected by heaven and abandoned by the world. How great is the love of God that refused to give us all that we demanded and instead gave us the one person that we could not do without, which is Jesus Christ himself. The Bible says in Titus 3 verse 4, When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. The Bible says in 1 John 3 verse 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. You're a child of the King. Did you know that? That's the love of God expressed towards you. That's the grace of God and the kindness of God all expressed towards you. The Bible says in 1 John 4, 9 and 10, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the satisfactory, substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. Now, that love of God for us is a love to which we must respond. Do we love God? Or have we merely seen Jesus Christ as a convenient fire escape out of hell? Because that's the danger, isn't it? We hear the whole gospel story, hear about the wrath of God, and we should definitely emphasize the wrath of God. But the danger is we communicate the idea that Jesus is just a ladder to be scrambled up to get out of hell. 
and into heaven. Do we love God? He in love-driven mercy has restrained his own hand from giving what us what we deserved. He loved us. He in love-driven grace has abundantly, lavishly poured out on us all that we could ever, never deserve. He loved us. He in love gave his only begotten son to redeem us and rescue us. We were the only, we were only disobedient, rebellious, sinful, and hating of him. He in love sent His Son and sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in us that we might be empowered to live by faith and so be pleasing to Him. Beloved, I urge you with all I have from one sinner saved by grace to other sinners also saved by grace, look and see the loveliness of Jesus Christ. Behold the beauty of God Almighty who has loved us in such a manner. Look and see, and if you can, attempt to grasp with your hands, with your mind, the idea of the full love of God. And when in frustration you realize you can never, ever grasp the full weight, the full measure of God's love for you, then offer Him thanks and praise and worship Him with your voice and your heart and your whole life. We need to see Jesus Christ not just as a fire escape, but the loveliest of all. He loved us with a love that's so amazing. But beloved, do we love God? You know, the first command in the Bible is this, that we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. When Jesus came and walked this earth, He did not do away with that commandment. In fact, He only made it a little more difficult. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And love your brothers and sisters in Christ. He actually increased it. And then he gave us the love that constrains and empowers and enables us to love one another. I love you in the Lord. Why? Because I'm a loving person? Not particularly. But because the Lord Jesus Christ loved me and gives me the love with which I can love you. And Christ gives you the love with which you can love each other. And we can show the world that we belong to Christ by the way in which we love each other. And when we fail, which sadly we so often do, we present a very distorted image and view of Christ's love when we fail to love each other the way that God has called us to love each other. He loved us. We love Him. Loving Christ means we live in obedience to His commands. We love God first. Our neighbors, our brothers, our sisters, our enemies. We go into all the world preaching the gospel, making disciples of all nations, teaching all men to obey God. We love God and we express that love by wanting to bring others into that same loving relationship. We devote ourselves, like the early church, to the apostles' doctrine, the Word of God. We devote ourselves to fellowship. What's fellowship? The guys and I were sitting around on Friday night talking about this. What fellowship is, is when we speak the Scriptures into each other's lives and we share that one thing that we have in common. And what do we all have in common? Christ. That's what fellowship is. We love God by devoting ourselves to the Word of God, fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. 
We respond to the love of God displayed in the person of Christ. God saved us because He loved us. God saved us that we too might love. Love Him and love each other. Thirdly, God saved us by uniting us with Christ. So from the, from the passage so far, we've told us that God saved us completely and fully from the wrath of God and all those other things. The passage tells us why God saved us, because of His love. So then how did God save us? He saved us by uniting us together with Christ. There's three words in the text that in the Greek actually have the idea of together with on each word. In Ephesians 2 verse 5, the Bible says He... That's God, and there's a bit of a, some words there in the space. He made us alive together with Christ, is a literal translation. In Ephesians 2 verse 6, it literally says, He raised us up together with Christ. In Ephesians 2 verse 6, the last part says this, He seated us together with Christ. It's all together with Christ. God saved us by uniting us together with Christ, so that His death becomes our death, my death, so that His resurrection becomes my resurrection from the dead, so that His being seated or His establishment and security becomes our establishment, our security in Christ. Did you notice, by the way, that we are seated with Him in heavenly places? But look what it says in Ephesians chapter 1. In verse 3, He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And you know, when I read that, my first thought was, that's a thing to come. And I realized, no, it's not. It's a thing right now. We have all the blessings of being in Christ right now. All those spiritual blessings... They're not just what we look forward to. They're what we enjoy this very minute. They're our security in Christ. He has fastened us together and united us with Christ and saved us that way. So how does it work itself out? The idea is that when He united us together, He suffered the full weight of God's wrath against sin. And because I am united with Him, I've suffered it with Him in that sense. Because He was buried Dead and buried, I was buried with Him. When He rose again from the dead, guess what? He raised me up with Christ. And so I'm never to die again. I'll never know what death is, spiritual death, cut off from God. Think of it like this, like wearing clothes. Now my arm is moving. It looks like my shirt sleeve is moving in the usual clumsy, awkward kind of man that always seems to move in and hit things. But you say, well, your jacket's moving. No, it's actually my, my arm inside my jacket. But my jacket has been united to my arm so much that when my arm moves, my jacket moves. Whatever my arm does, my jacket does alongside the arm. They're tied together. I'm united with Christ. And all those things become mine because I'm in Him. Now listen. Because Jesus has no sin of His own, He's able to carry my sin in His body on the cross. Because He is a sinless, spotless Son of the living God, He is able to bear the sin of all His people in His body on the cross. So just like the man in the Old Testament, you remember the story in Leviticus? He brings His offering to the gateway of the tabernacle. 
And he stands there and he places his hands on the head of the animal and he begins to confess out loud all the sins that he has committed. And what he is doing is he is transferring his sin onto that animal. So also we. We symbolically place our hands on Christ and we identify ourselves with Him. And in a sense, we place our sin on Him and He suffers God's wrath for us in our place. Now, I can hear you thinking, maybe, possibly, I wasn't there. I didn't get to walk up to Christ and put my hand on Christ, literally, and say, well, you take my sin for me. How then am I identified with Christ? That man had to bring the animal and place his hands on the head and have it offered in his place. How then are we identified with Christ? And the answer, of course, is by faith. We believe. It is by faith in God that we identify ourselves with Christ. Listen to what the Bible says. Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We often forget that confession with our mouths is so important. We talk about faith all the time, but that confession is also important. It is both the belief in our heart and that confession with our mouth that identifies us with Christ. But listen, don't misunderstand. Because you could easily switch over and go, well, it, the, the, the speaking actually saves me, therefore it's a work, so I'm saving myself by working. You don't want to do that. They have to go together. But it's, it's genuine faith and belief in our heart. Whatever we say with our mouth is worthless if it, we don't believe in our hearts. So that faith has to be in our hearts. That's why he says it's both believing in our hearts and confessing with our mouths. Faith and belief in the heart without the vocal confession is lacking. Yes, we're saved by faith. But according to James chapter 2, verses 17 to 26, faith that has no accompanying works, no proof, is dead. Right? So the simplest proof of faith is a public, vocal expression of faith in Christ. Belief, trust in God with all your heart and confess with your mouth and you will be saved. Which brings me to a touchy topic. Listen, believer, why is it so crucially important that we as believers obey the Lord Jesus Christ in believer's baptism? Because baptism is all about a public identification, identifying with Christ in his death, identifying with Christ in his burial, and identifying with Christ in his resurrection. We baptize believers. We bring them up. They go into the water. They go down under the water, and we lift them back up again. It's a visible picture that we have identified ourselves with Christ. We are buried with him. We are raised back to new life with him. We baptize people on a public, vocal confession of faith. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart? The answer hopefully is, yes, I do. Believe with all my heart. Then upon your confession of faith, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we put them down under the water. Now, can I take a moment, just sidestep for a second, to plead with you. If you're in this church... And you have never been baptized as a believer by immersion, then please understand. 
refusal to be baptized as a believer in Jesus Christ upon your confession of faith is disobedience to God and his word. Now, I'm fully rare that I probably just offended a few people in this room. But let me tell you, in all honesty, as I read and study the Word of God, I am more afraid of offending God by not saying it than offending some by saying it. Come and see me, one of the elders, so we can explain to you more in detail. Believe and be baptized. But listen, don't believe and be baptized because I'm urging you to. Believe and be baptized because the Word of God clearly tells you to. The Lord Jesus Christ who died to save you commands you to through his word. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch? I was driving here this morning thinking through my sermon. I actually hadn't put this in here. And I thought, oh, the Ethiopian eunuch, that's perfect. Perfect illustration. He's driving along in his chariot, driving from Jerusalem to Gaza. He's a rich man because he's bought a scroll of the prophet Isaiah and he's sitting back in his chariot and someone's driving along in front and he's reading a scroll and he's reading about the lamb that went to the slaughter and so on. And the Holy Spirit takes Philip and puts him on the road and says, go and join that chariot. Go and step with him. And Philip runs down the thing and he gets alongside him. And I often wonder if the chariot wasn't driving along and Philip was running along the side just for a few moments. And, Do you understand what you're reading? How can I unless someone explains it to me? So the Ethiopian stops the chariot. In gets Philip. He begins to read and explain. And the Bible says that he preaches Christ to him. After a while, the Ethiopian says, What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip's answer in Acts chapter 8 and verse 37, If you believe with all your heart, you may. The Ethiopian confesses that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and Philip baptizes him. Listen, this is the order. He believed in his heart. He confessed with his mouth, identifying himself with Christ, and he was baptized. So we identify ourselves with Christ by faith in Christ and a public, vocal confession of our faith in Christ. Listen to what the Bible says in Galatians 2.20. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself with me. What's he saying? I've been crucified with Christ. It didn't mean he was up there being nailed to the cross at the same time. It means he identified himself with Christ so that Christ's crucifixion became his. The Bible says, Romans 7 verse 4, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit to God. What's he saying? When Christ died, he met all the requirements of the law. All the demands of the law for my death were fulfilled when Christ died. I've died with him. I no longer have to face death. Colossians 3 verses 1 and 2 says this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Get it? Raised with Christ. We die with Christ. We're buried with Christ. We're raised with Christ. It's that identification with Him. God saved us by uniting us together with Christ. And the call of Scripture is this. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Believe and be baptized. What those guys say on the Pentecost morning? 
What should we do? Be baptized. They had already been pricked in their heart. They already knew. They were already seeking what to do next. And he says, be baptized. I so much wanted to finish the fourth point, but I know just, time's getting on, so we just won't go there. We'll pick it up next week and we'll expand it a bit more. But to sum it up by way of conclusion, like this. God saved us completely. There's nothing left to be saved from. And so we must confess, admit, agree with God about what He says about our sin. We cry out to God for forgiveness. We trust God to keep His promises. God saved us because He loves us. Not past tense. Not even future tense. He loves continuously unbroken. God in love-driven mercy did not give us what we deserve, but God in love-driven grace lavished on us all that we could never deserve. God in love-driven kindness loved us gently as a father loves his dearly loved child. And so we must respond. We love God with all our hearts, our souls, our minds, and our strengths. We love our neighbors, our enemies, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Our love God above all else and be obedient to his commands. Because love is expressed when we are obedient to his commands. God saved us thirdly by uniting us together with Christ. His death became my death and hopefully yours. His burial became ours. His resurrection ours. His being seated in the heavenly places has become our being seated and established never to lose that salvation. I've met people occasionally who, who struggle with this idea that we are once saved, always saved. I think one of the most desperate situations to believe you can be saved and lost. Saved and lost. That God can save you one day and let go of you the next. That God kind of and drops you. No. Absolutely not. A thousand times no. We are absolutely safe in our, fa- our Father's hand, in the Savior's hand. He who saved us once saved us for all time. The work of cross was abs- the work of Christ on the cross was absolutely po- complete and sufficient. You can never be lost. Praise God they're not going to come up to me one day in heaven and say, you know, our accounting department's done some checking and there's still a few sins left for you to take care of, so you'll have to leave heaven. They never do that. (laughs) Thank the Lord for that. It's completely done. He seated us. He established us in Christ. So what do we do? What's the message of the Bible for us today? Trust Christ, not because I'm telling you to, but because the Word of God tells you to. Seek God's forgiveness for sin because the Bible calls you to love God. Respond to His God love by loving Him with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength because the Bible calls you to. It's His Word. Obey Christ's commands because that is what pleases Him. What a wonderful Savior we have. Amen? A wonderful Savior who has, who has saved us completely because of His love, by uniting us together with Christ. What a wonderful Savior. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray and then we'll sing the benediction.
Father in heaven, as we run our eyes over those verses in Ephesians 2, in the first three verses, we were dead. We were living according to the course of this world. We were living according to the ways of the wicked one in his domain. Father, we were living according to the passions and desires of our flesh. And we were absolutely, irrevocably destined for the full weight of your wrath because of our sin and disobedience. And Father, we, we stop and we look up to the cross for a moment. And there we see love displayed unlike any other kind of love. A love that was poured out in the weight on us as the weight of your wrath was poured on him. Your love did not skip and bypass your justice. It dealt with it in full. Father, we, we would just stop and say we love the Lord Jesus this morning. We love him who was willing to put aside the glories of heaven and walk this earth and rescue us and save us. And Father, we realize in a moment of thinking that this life is just a fleeting shadow. Eternity will be so much better and so much greater. The work of God in us finished and complete, face to face with our Savior who loved us unto death. Father, this morning, my heart, in my heart, Father, I know that there are some in here in this room, in the sound of my voice, Lord, that don't know you. They have never, ever turned towards you, confessed their sin, pleaded with you for forgiveness, and begun to live their lives in obedience, driven by love. Father, I cry out to you that you would give them no peace, that the Spirit of God would weigh heavily upon their hearts the reality of their sin, the reality of the wrath of God that faces them. And that, Father, that you would draw them by the sight of the Lord Jesus Christ suffering, but also the sight of him rising victorious from the grave, death defeated, sin defeated. Father, I pray that you would draw them to yourself, that they would trust the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, and they would walk with him all the days of their life. Father, too, for those in this room who have never followed the Lord Jesus in baptism, Father, I pray that they would seek more answers, look to the scriptures, seek the help of friends and elders and loved ones, parents even, that they would see the reality of the necessity to follow Christ fully in obedience. Father, we ask you for, again, a revival in this church. A wholesale turning away, Father, from the sin that we have so quickly engaged ourselves in and allowed to creep in, allowed to hold a spot. Father, I pray, I plead with you, O oh God, that you would do a great work in this church. Father, we know but it must begin with a confession of sin, a putting aside of sin, and a turning to you in hopelessness and helplessness, crying out that you would rescue and save us. Father, again, this same-sex marriage thing. 
I know, Lord, it must grieve your heart to even hear those words rolled together in one statement. But, Father, we cry out to you that you would prevent it from becoming a a legal reality in this country. Father, we pray again that you would move the hearts and, and minds of men and women in this church, in the churches of this country, to be on their faces pleading with you in prayer. Not just for a prevention of a law, Father, but for a revival, a return to the Word of God, a return to hearing what the Scriptures say. Father, we ask you these things and we plead with you in Jesus' name. Amen.